From the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome to tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody. I'm the Vernomatic, and welcome to this week's show. As always, Thursday nights, new content drops. Visit MetalMayhemROC.com. There you'll find direct links to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. While you're there, download some past shows, review, subscribe. Last week, we had an interview with Spirit Adrift and Enforcer. A couple weeks ago, we did a review of the Rockin' Pod from Nashville that I attended. So go back there, check out some of the past shows, and get to know what we're doing up here. Sign up for our email list. There you'll receive weekly updates on new shows, merch promos, giveaways. Don't forget Monday nights on ThatMetalStation.com. I host the live radio show version of the show. We play tunes. There's a chat room. Interact with uh, bangers from around the world. It's a real good time. Talking about good times, tonight I welcome back two of our show contributors and metal historians, Ian O'Rourke and Metal Walt. These two metalheads helped me navigate this awesome new series that we started called The History of Metal. Now tonight we're highlighting the year 1975. This is the third of a 15-part series. A couple weeks ago we did 74 and obviously we started with 73 a couple weeks ago. We're going all the way up to 1988 so every couple weeks we'll introduce new episodes. So basically what we do, we go back and we're reflecting on what the hard rock and metal landscape was like at the time in these particular years. We revisit the albums released, introduce new bands debuting in that year. We mix in music from these bands and these particular albums. We encourage your feedback. We welcome both your opinions and takes on these bands. Leave comments on our Facebook group page or Metal Mayhem ROC website. Tell us if you like what we're doing, what we're not doing, if what I was saying was bullshit, or if a take that Ian had was outstanding. You know, let us know, because, um, you know, more information we get from you, our listeners, the better the product will be. Again, folks, it's just three metalheads talking about the music we love. It's just really a fun discussion. So let's catch up with our two metal correspondents from New Jersey, Metal Walt, and from Central New York, Ian O'Rourke. Hey, Walt, um, get us up to speed on exactly uh, where we left off after 1974. So, hey, guys, uh, happy to be back at it doing uh, 1975. So, yeah, on 1974, I think um, we saw some big things happening. Uh, we saw the continuation of the heavy hitters releasing uh, albums on a consistent basis. We also saw quite a few debuts um, in that year. And, you know, from the band's Kiss Bad Company, Judas Priest, uh, we saw some changes in lineups. The one big one that comes to mind is uh, the lineup change within Deep Purple. 
And I think that lends itself nicely to 75 because in 75, you saw a lot of those bands that were just getting established in 74 really turn it up a notch, uh, putting out some big releases, continuing the trend, and they became sort of, let's say, the next bands that uh, jumped on that roadmap. 75, you also saw the return of releases from bands that were maybe a bit inactive in 74. Uh, Led Zeppelin came out with Physical Graffiti and Black Sabbath uh, released the Sabotage album. So again, I think you saw that trend of continuing of the heavy hitters releases and the emerging bands. Now we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, And Ian, I think, has a great uh, knowledge of those new bands. But boy, there were quite a few great bands that had their origins in in 75 that really you ended seeing up with uh, releases in 76. And we can cover that a little bit later. Let's bring in uh, Ian O'Rourke. Ian, uh, uh, glad to have you back. What's going on, man? Hey, what's going on, boys? I'm glad to be back here again. Uh, yeah, I I totally agree with everything that, that Walt just said. You know, 75 really turns out the heat a little bit. You can see that it really gets to that next level when it comes to the intensity and the excitement of the music that's going on and that's being created. Um, I'm looking forward to this a lot. So, uh, like Walt said, there was some heavy hitters that took 74 off, but come back with a vengeance. And I think at the the top of the mountain is Led Zeppelin. Released in 75, in early 75, their sixth album, Physical Graffiti. Now, the thing with this album was, it was originally supposed to be a 74 release, but because of manufacturing delays with the uh, packaging, it got delayed over until 75. Some consider this Zeppelin's um, pinnacle, their longest album, turned into two LPs. The leftover tracks from their earlier releases made it onto side four of this. 16-time platinum, huge album, huge tour. Again, it's Zeppelin at their pinnacle.
Guys, what's your uh, input on Zeppelin at the time and this release? This is probably, pound for pound, my favorite Zeppelin album. Just because there's so much great material on the album. I mean, it starts off, you know, you got Custard Pie and you've got The Rover, In My Time of Dying. These are classic songs. The the majestic Cashmere, it, it is just so good. This is my favorite Zeppelin album all the way around. And worth noting, it hit the number one uh, spot in both the UK and the US albums chart that year. Pretty big uh, feat. Oh, sure. They were uh biggest band in the world at that point. Speaking of King of the Hill, 75 saw Kiss really um, move up the charts and become possibly the biggest band in the world. They had two releases. The Dress to Kill album came out. It was, um, you know, March 75, released on Casablanca. Now, th- the thing with this album was they really weren't getting much traction in terms of album sales at the time. Casablanca was in tough shape. Financial situation was dire. They actually had uh, record president Neil Bogart as the, quote, uh, producer of the album. Well, this album, it had um, future rock and roll staples like Rock and Roll All Night, Come On and Love Me, um, Rock Bottom. These are all the songs that ended up being on what was to follow later that fall and really put Kiss at the top of the hill was the Kiss Alive 1 release. Walt, what's your take on One Dress to Kill and the trajectory to Kiss Alive 1 and where Kiss ended up? Well, first of all, I think the album cover itself is totally cool. I mean, for them to uh, debut in the makeup and the costumes and then to see them uh, dressed in suits with their makeup on and these cool patent shoes and jean with his clogs on, and I don't recall specifically where it was taken, but it's... uh, I think somewhere on 8th Avenue in New York City in a black and white photo is really just a sharp album cover, you know? I mean, I think you saw um, really some of the Kiss favorites uh, in in calling, let's say, cool rockers, some good ones that came out of the album, the deep tracks, Rock Bottom comes to mind, and of course, She, uh, you know, Come On and Love Me, right? So this, this, this album, aside from, you know, Rock and Roll All Night, which is played to death, still this day, 40-something years later, it's got some cool songs on it, but not one that you're going to look back and say, man, there's eight or ten, you know, memorable tracks that that came out of it, but definitely has some some awesome, awesome songs on it. And I think, uh, you know, as it moved ahead to later that year and we got into the Alive album, I mean, boy, this Alive album really was, let's say, probably one, if one or the first of its kind. I'm going to expand on what you were just talking about with those songs really weren't overwhelming studio version, but a live one, those songs from those first three albums just had a different life. They just came to life and they were just magical. And so like when you hear a song like rock and roll all night on, on dress to kill, you know, it's a fun song, but when you hear it in the framework of kiss alive one, it's, you know, it still gives you goosebumps today for the generations that have gotten into Kiss as their gateway band, like myself back in the day. Soon as I hear that album, you go back to 1975 or 76 when you got into it. That's how 
mesmerizing and important that album really was. Listen, I want to tell you all, I want to tell you you've been a dynamite audience and you deserve to give yourselves a round of applause. Let's go. All right. What's your take on Kiss Alive 1? What's your history with that? My first introduction to Kiss was the Love Gun album. But the next album that I was introduced to that just totally mesmerized me was Alive 1. And just going through looking at the pictures and my buddy Kyle had the poster and everything that came with it and listening to that intensity with the audience and everything that's going on and then hearing the songs that you would, you know, I would eventually later hear on the, you know, the, the first album and Hotter Than Hell, but hearing them then captured live, finally having that intensity that needed to be there, you know, because that's the only thing that has ever been, at least for myself personally, I will always say the first album is, it, it has an underwhelmingness to it for me because of the production. If you had taken and, and done production that was similar to maybe a Black Sabbath or something like that with the guitar tones, that album would be in a whole other stratosphere, in my opinion. But when you finally get a chance to hear it the way it should have been captured on Kiss Alive 1, that all bets are off, man. I mean, that's that's how they just turned things up to 10 and kept going. So, yeah. so Ian, um, to that point, um, and I'm going to make that counter argument to your point. Again, I agree with you. Great album, very historical to all of our influence on the hard rock area. But it uh, it is well documented that was the beginning of Kiss getting into the studio and tampering with their live recordings. Um, and this was uh, no exception that uh, really, you know, you have to wonder how many of the tracks that we hear and love were really captured from that live state. Or were they really tampered with in the uh, the studio? Drum tracks changed, all the mistakes corrected. Which, to be honest, it takes away from the authenticity of a live show. Now, most fans will really not think about that all that much. It's not something that's going to 
really cross their mind as they're listening to it. But it also, you know, lends itself to say, eh, maybe it doesn't have that novelty that uh, that it, that it really should have. I agree with that. You know, we, we, we didn't know until years later when it came out that it was tampered with. And as the years go on, you hear more and more from, you know, engineers and people that were around at the time exactly what the final product was compared to what was captured originally. So fair, fair point there, Walt, fair point. So, Walt, you have some bands that you wanted to share with us what they're up to in 75. Uh, what are some of our veteran bands up to with new releases? Alice Cooper uh, released Welcome to My Nightmare. And uh, this was the first solo release by Alice, um, not with the traditional Alice Cooper band. Um, really what he had done is uh, he had brought in Lou Reed from New York City, his touring band, to record. Um, so Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner, both guitar players, you know, were some pretty, uh, pretty you know, named players that came in um, and uh, helped write the album. And actually, it's, it's the, maybe one of the first of its kinds. It's a concept album. And it's all about uh, the nightmares of Steven, the character in the Alice Cooper stories, right? So that's a really, really a cool idea. Again, I think when you look at the track listing, it's just, it's got so many memorable standout, either radio tracks or deep tracks. You got the title track. Um, you have these, these cool little rockers like Cold Ethel. And then you have like the, the ballady Only Women Bleed which is a complete turnaround and maybe the start of Alice showing his, let's say, acoustic ballad side that he went forward with. Um, there's also some of these deep rock tracks here that maybe don't come to mind initially. And that's the, the track Stephen itself and the track Black Widow, um, which has a, a traditional introduction from Vincent Price. So, you know, I think this is a pinnacle of Alice Cooper. These words he speaks are true. We're all humanary stew. We don't pledge allegiance to the Black Widow. The horror that he'll bring. The horror of his sting. The unholiest of kings. The Black Widow. And every girl and boy will learn to be employed The Black Widow I think this is also an example of one of the trends you started to see in 75, where, in my personal opinion, this was the last great Alice Cooper album of the 70s, right? I think you saw a change in him. He started spiraling down a bad path of alcoholism. And then you get through a maybe a six or seven year period where really there's nothing out there that anybody, anything comes to mind. And I think you saw this with some of the other bands, too. Um, I think you saw it with Black Sabbath. 
um, Black Sabbath this year, in 1975, released the album Sabotage. Um, they had not put a release out in 74. Um, again, it's Sabotage is a good album. I mean, it's got some great tracks on there. Hole in the Sky, Symptom of the Universe. Um, you stay in that world of how they expand a little bit with orchestras. And uh, you get some of these, let's say, different tracks for Sabbath. Um, the track that comes to mind is Am I Going Insane Radio, which kind of has this quirky little rear, rear sound in the background. And then you have the orchestrated acoustic uh, song called Super Tsar. And that was their introduction tape for many, many years on the road. Um, but I think with, with Sabbath here, too, I think it was a bit of a stretch because, um, oddly enough, the title of the album was named after their feeling at the time of being sabotaged by both their management and the record company for basically ripping them off or not making the money on, you know, what they released for their first five or six years of their career. Um, I think maybe, again, when you look at, let's say, the, 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 the decline in the band, this was a solid effort. But as you get into the year after with technical ecstasy and eventually never say die, I think you're starting to see the slow decline of that uh, initial Aussie period. Um, and of course, uh, in reading up on some history on the band, how ironic that we were just talking about it, how Kiss was the opening act for this tour. And uh, the tour had to get stopped short because Ozzy uh, got into a motorcycle accident and they had to abort the tour. I would say the, the other band that comes to mind also was Deep Purple. In 1975, they released what would be their, let's say, last album as a, a band of that period until they reformed again in 1984 uh, with Richie Blackmore. But Come Taste the Band came out. Uh, many critics will say that this is not even real Deep Purple because you don't have Dylan Black Blackmore or Glover in the lineup. It's a carryover of the Glenn Hughes-David Coverdale era, but Tommy Bolin steps in, and uh, you're really just uh, remaining members of our Ian Pace and John Lord. Now, my personal opinion of this is I think it's a really cool album because it brought a slightly different sound to it. You got Lord moving over from his traditional let's say, um, Hammond organ style to a funky organ style. And I think Glenn Hughes, who came out of, let's say, the trapeze days, and even to this day, he's got a funky side of him. One of his role models is Stevie Wonder. You start to see that funk sound develop within Deep Purple. And um, I think one of the standout tracks on that album is a song called Getting Tighter, which is a, a totally killer track. It's got a great riff, a great vibe. It's got some cool, like, jump to it and something that maybe you wouldn't say is traditional deep purple, but still a, a really cool track nonetheless. Um, but again, you know, you saw different sides of the, the band on this album. You saw the ballady kind of dark David Coverdale song, you keep on moving. And then you saw like the beginning of Glenn Hughes doing, let's say piano, like a piano song uh, called this time around, which is a really, really, really cool song. But the point of this is again, this was, uh, maybe the beginning of the end, and who knows what path Deep Purple had forward at that point in time. And of course, it's no secret that um, the band ended in 1976, and shortly after that, later in the year, Tommy Bowen overdosed and uh, and died. So a sad state of affairs, but uh, that's kind of how, I guess, that period of, of Deep Purple ended. Yeah, that's that's sad. These bands were so great. They were being ripped off and drug abuse and just internal conflict just ripped them apart uh ian what do you got uh what's on your docket for uh mid 70s 
one of my all-time favorite albums and it in it is no surprise to anybody that you know i've mentioned ufo many times when we've talked but the album force it came out in 75 and it catapults from what they had done in 74 with Schenker joining the band but now when you come forward to this next album this is one of those albums that they go on a run up until the time that Schenker leaves after the Obsession album, just putting out consistent, great hard rock albums. Um, starts off with Let It Roll, you know, then you got songs like Shoot Shoot, uh, High Flyer, Love Lost Love, Out in the Streets, Mother Mary, another just kick-ass hard rock song. It's it's packed full of just great, heavy riffing hard rock blazing solos by Schenker and that monster of a voice from Phil Mogg. And then on the other side of things, you have the Bostonians and Aerosmith coming out with the seminal Toys in the Attic album. Toys in the Attic, another one of consistent, you know, three, four albums right in a row where these guys were just firing on all cylinders, putting out just great stuff. Yeah, Uncle Salty. Adam Zappel, Walk This Way, Big Time Inch, Can't Turn On The Radio Without Hearing That One, Sweet Emotion, Can't Turn On The Radio Without Hearing That One, Round and Round, You See Me Crying, Got the title track, Toys in the Attic. It's just great, great template. They stick with this template, and it kind of goes from here to the next album, and to uh, ultimately to the, uh, the third album after that, which is Draw the Line. And that's probably... When we get to that point, you'll start to see where they start succumbing to some of those um, vices of the 70s. But, yeah, these guys were putting out some really great stuff at this time. Right, that Toys in the Attic album is fantastic. 
And like I mentioned at the end of last episode, uh, Jack Douglas was involved with the band, and he was the producer behind all those albums that you mentioned that, that started uh, in the mid-70s, 74, 75, and going up and through 78. Another set of bands that I'm going to profile right now, uh, The Scorpions. Name of the album is In Trance, and the lineup, Klaus Meine, vocals, Ulrich Roth, Rudolf Schenker, Michael's brother, rhythm guitar, Francis Buckles, and Rudy Lenners on drums. Now, this album's jam-packed with Scorpion, mid-Scorpion uh, five stars. Dark Lady, In Trance, Robot Man, um, Top of the Bill. These are songs that ended up on their Tokyo Tapes live album from uh, 78. But this is the start of the Scorpions going on their own 70s three to five album run where they just ascended into uh, 70 superstars, not so much in America, but more overseas. And it wasn't until the transition from the uh, late seventies to eighties where they became global uh, heavyweights, but we'll get to that. And another set of albums. Now this gets tricky guys. This is the whole story behind ACDC. Now, ACDC comes from uh, Australia. Their first album, TNT, was only released in Australia. It never had an American release. So technically, their first release is in 1975, but it was only in Australia. I mean, uh, I don't know what kind of import scenario there was in 1975 in terms of getting import records uh, across the world, but I'm sure it took a while. But the kicker here is in the next year when their first international release was High Voltage, it was um, all but two of the songs on the TNT. So two releases, one of them had all the songs of the previous album. But ACDC, the TNT album was uh, fantastic. A long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, rock and roll singer, The Jack, Livewire, TNT, Rocker, uh, High Voltage, Can I Sit Next to You, Girl? That, that, that's classic ACDC. The third band that I'm going to highlight right now is Rush. Now, Rush, like Kiss, released a couple of these albums within uh, five or six months of each other. Now, Kiss at 75 had one studio album, but then a live album. Rush, on the other hand, they had their first album with new drummer Neil Peart and Fly By Night. That was released in 75. Had some, uh, you know, songs like Fly By Night, In The Mood, um, Best I Can, Anthem, uh, Making Memories. These are shorter songs that maybe a little more radio friendly with air quotes. Not that they had much radio airplay. Uh, they did a, a brief tour. You know, back in those days, these bands were all touring together. We've discussed this, how, you know, they all were on each other's tours and they were just road dogs. Later in the year, they quickly went into studio and released a uh, recorded another album called Caress of Steel. Now, this is when things got slippery because that album, Caress of Steel, they came out in September of 75 and it marked a development in the group's sound. Moving away from that blues-based hard rock style to more of a progressive rock style. 
Now, granted, on the back end of the uh, Fly By Night album, they were uh, dipping their toe in the concept pool of music with uh, Bytor and the Snow Dog. But when Crest of Steel came around, uh, they dove right in. On the first side, the Necromancer had three parts to it. But then the rest of the album, the Fountain of Lamneth, that ended up having another six parts. So what I'm trying to get across here is Rush was doing it on their terms. And even though their record label wasn't in financial ruins like Casablanca and Kiss were, Rush was on their last leg. They were ready to get dropped by their label. That's when, in 76, they came out swinging with um, 2112. But we'll get to that. Uh, Walt, let me ask you. um, You're a big Rush fan. What's your take on these two releases? Yeah, so uh, my opinion also, I can uh, support your feelings about this. And I I think you were being nice by putting it mildly, but I'm not uh, a very big fan of Caressive Steel. I think it has its moments. Uh, The Steel Day, of course, is an awesome track. But, uh, you know, as much as I love their, um, let's say, progressive-y experimental songs that are to come over the next 10 years, I, I just can't get into songs like the Necromancer and the Fountain of Lament. Um, it just doesn't do it for me. And uh, I do. I think this one fell flat. And as you mentioned, they were on life support if they didn't come back with a big hitter. Um, and of course, which they did. And I think the Fly My Night album has some cool tracks on there. That one's actually a little bit better. Um, but I don't think either album is a complete album. I don't think they really hit that point until they really step it up, you know, from what's to come from, let's say, 76 to 80, 81, where they really become a uh, a major, major force. Ian, your take on Rush, 75? Fly By Night itself is just such a great album. And, and like I had mentioned in the last episode, you can see that step ahead as they progressed from now Neil coming into the band but they still had a little bit of one foot holding on to some of those hard rock roots that they had on the first album, you know, like you had mentioned Anthem and best I can. Those are just, you know, banging songs, man. And then same thing with Crest of Steel, you know, you got Bastille day. I mean, that is a, you know, live favorite of that band. I can agree to a certain extent, you know, the, the Necromancer and the Fountain of Lamneth get a little meandery. I've often felt the same during certain sequences in uh, the 2112 uh, Overture, but I still think that when you look at the whole of the creative picture, I can look past just these little bit of subtleties because as they were trying to in, interpret, like any artist, putting their, their stuff out there, they were it was ex- all about experimentation. So one thing led to the next, led to the next, led to the next. So, I mean, both of those albums in my book, they're right up there. Fair enough. I respect that. Ian, what else you got for mid-70s? Another great seminal album that came out in 75 was Nazareth, Hair of the Dog. All right, and you cannot not listen to classic rock radio without hearing hair of the dog love hurts even though that was a uh cover but then they had bangers like miss misery 
changing times. I mean, it's, it's just loaded from top to bottom. And again, you can still see where a lot of these bands, because of coming from the, the British blues boom that happened in the late 60s, there's still those moments where they like to let the vocalist, you know, stretch out and, and strut his stuff a little bit. And, you know, they, they really do a fine job with that. This was their first album to actually be produced by uh, Manny Charlton, the guitar player. Um, they had had uh, Roger Glover had done the previous albums for them, but this time around, they kind of felt confident enough that they knew how they wanted to sound from what he had shown them and going forward. And uh, Manny stepped up and he did a great job with it. The other band that put out a kicker of an album this year, and it's another uh, progress in their development is Thin Lizzy with Fighting. And this continues to show that growth of that dual guitar attack with Gorham and Robertson. Um, you know, it starts off with a, a kick-ass cover of the song Rosalie, which was originally written by Bob Seeger, that these guys just really just turn it into their own. Um, there's, for those who love to live, Suicide, which is a concert staple, Fighting My Way Back, King's Vengeance. I mean, there's just so many good songs on there. You even got Scott Gorham stretching out and actually getting his you know first full writing credit on his own with the song Ballad of a Hard Man, which is the closure on the album, which has just got this heavy, funky, driving 5-4 beat to it. It's just really awesome to listen to. And it, you can see where from the previous album, Nightlife, to here, where they're making the steps and they're starting on that three or four album ascendancy, that mid-70s you know, superiority that all these other bands have uh, shared. They'll be uh, showing that in display on the next few albums. So, Walt, what other uh, info do you have about uh, music in 75? So worth calling out quickly would be uh, another strong release from Bad Company, the album Straight Shooter. This was their second release. Um, it was actually recorded in 1974, but released in 75. And it was actually ironically recorded only three months after their debut. Again, I think this uh, is just a solid album all the way around. And it's got, you know, these these FM staples that here we are again, as we always say, 40, 45 years later, where you can't turn on the radio and not hear, you know, feel like making love and shooting star. And also a good rocker there, uh, good love and gone bad. So again, worth worth a shout out. Um, I think the, the big breakthrough release this year, um, probably along with Physical Graffiti, was uh, Queen's Night at the Opera. Uh, I think the backstory with this is, again, a, a common trend here. Uh, the band was maybe on its fourth or fifth year of existence. They were not making any money off their prior releases. Their management and their record company were, were hoarding everything. They were on the brink of failure, and they knew they had to make a, uh, a basically a smash album. And they went in there with their backs against the wall, knowing they were bankrupt and that this was probably their last shot of making a record or they're going to go have to find another career. And uh, boy, that they do that. I mean, you know, when you look at the track list here, they cover everything from ballads to hard rock metal songs, progressive songs. You have folk music on there. Um, just a very, very diverse album. And it really put them on the map as global stars. Um, when you think of the tracks, Bohemian Rhapsody, and then you go over to the ballad side of Love of My Life. Um, you have Roger Taylor's penned rocker, I'm in Love With My Car. 
um, that mid-tempo kind of moody song, You're My Best Friend, which you still hear on the radio. Um, and then there's a cool little song called 39, which is kind of like an acoustic folk song, a uh, Brian May hen track that's, uh, I think, something about like a spaceship or something like that landing in 39 and we know what a big science guy he is so we'll have to fact check that one but again the point being is it was just really their springboard to stardom at this point um i think and then the other other band worth calling out here is uh a big one and this is the debut of uh richie blackmore's rainbow now it is the only album that is titled the band is titled richie blackmore's rainbow um and, you know, again, it, it came out of uh, the beginning of the dust of the demise of Deep Purple. Uh, again, as we talked about last episode, uh, Dio was sort of on the roadmap, albeit behind the scenes with the band Elf. And uh, Richie Blackmore basically, you know, took Ronnie and his Elf members and they recorded this album uh, over in Germany in, in Munich. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a really solid release. When you think about songs like Man on the Silver Mountain, um, the very atmospheric Catch the Rainbow uh, and Temple of the King. And then you have, uh, you know, cool little rocker like uh, with the cowbell in there with the black sheep of the family. And then a, and a cover of the Yardbird song, which has a whole different vibe to it. Still, I'm sad. Um, so, again, a really, really solid release. Um, small little fact about it is this actual album never got to go out on tour in that debut year. Um, because slightly after the release was done, Blackmore fired the band and started bringing in the new members that would eventually be uh, recording and coming up as that classic Rainbow lineup uh, that would release Rising the year later. So, uh, yeah, fantastic release and, and definitely a highlight of 75. Didn't it seem like Richie Blackmore was always firing guys and revolving the roster from album to album? Isn't that amazing? He did this. I mean, a brand new band, his first solo act under his moniker he picks the guys to come in and record and then they don't even make it a year yeah well that, that's a great album that's a great era i i mentioned earlier that i just got done listening to the ronnie james Dio book rainbow in the dark just the information that he shared about those rainbow days honestly walt it has made me go back and rediscover the rainbow era and I'm a big fan now, and listening to you talk about it made me appreciate it even more. That's part of what we're doing here is through each of our own experience and knowledge and love of these bands, hopefully someone out there listening will deep down take our word for it and go discover something. So uh, so Queen kicking ass their backs to the wall. They come around with, um, you know, possibly their greatest album. Uh, Rainbow comes around and Bad Company keeps up the hot streak of radio hits. Uh, one other band that I was able to, uh, I'm going to share with you, is Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent was my very first concert that I went to in 1980. And back in the 80s, or back in the 70s, Nugent was one of my gateway artists that double live Gonzo and this album, Ted Nugent's first one. Now, Nugent being tired of the Amboy Duke's lack of effort and discipline, left the band, decided he has had enough, and he's taken a three-month vacation, clearing his head, went hunting over in Colorado, 
what he came back with was the debut Ted Nugent album. Stranglehold, Stormtrooping, Just What the Doctor Ordered, Motor City Madhouse. These are, were all staples from that Double Live Gonzo release of Nugent's uh, mid-70s live album. You know, it just put Nugent on the map. And Ted Nugent in the 70s, he was one of those artists that had a stretch of, you know, killer monumental albums. He's in my wheelhouse. I'll always be a Ted fan. Um, Ian, you have some other bands that were releasing in 75. What do you got for us, buddy? Last real, I guess, bigger band uh, released from that year was with Uriah Heep. Uriah Heep had Return to Fantasy. It's a solid album. You know, you've got Return to Fantasy. You've got Shady Lady, Devil's Daughter, Beautiful Dream. All of these songs are songs that have gone on to be played and adored uh, by the fans uh, in live settings as the years went on. The, really, the the only other thing that I wanted to add was, you know, you guys taking all the fun with all of your, uh, you know, your new material between the, you know, the first Rainbow and uh, Ted Nugent albums. A little obscure hard rock act from Canada called Moxie. And Moxie, in years later, would be the first band that a young Mike Reno from the band Loverboy would make his debut on their third album, replacing the original singer. But for anybody that wants to delve back into listening to to some music that's just really some good old-fashioned hard rock, the self-titled album, you know, you have songs like Fantasy, Sail On, Sail Away, can't you see I'm a star? Moon Rider, Time to Move On, Still I Wonder, Train Out of the Darkness. It's really a solid album. Do yourself a favor and try to check it out because I don't think you'll be disappointed. And it kind of leads you into some of the stuff that we're going to be seeing from bands going forward. But that's really some some really good material there. That's awesome. Thank you. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back... Ian's going to give us a little insight on the class of 76, who's going to be releasing some of their debut albums. And me and Walt and Ian, we're going to start digging around, seeing who's getting their chops together in the basement and garages around the world as Metal Mayhem ROC presents the history of metal, the year 1975. Friends of the Metal Mayhem ROC podcast, Vernomatic here, inviting you to get those horns up and to join us live Monday night, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time for Metal Mayhem ROC Live. We crack the vaults open and play the best of the metal for the last 50 years. Get in a chat room, meet other bangers from around the world, send me a request, and I'll get it on for you. That's Metal Mayhem ROC Live with me. The Vernomatic, Monday nights, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on NetMetalStation.com. Metal Mayhem ROC. 
metalheads around the world know that Metal Mayhem ROC plays the music they love, gives them the music news they want, and talks with the artists they want to hear from. We have legendary rocker Don Dock and metal comedian Jim Florence, Michael Sweet, founder of the band Striper, Bobby Blitz of Overkill, the guys from Last in Line. We have Rod's drummer, founder, and solo artist Carl Kennedy with us, the author of the now famous Van Halen Rising, Greg Reynolds, Heidi and Carla from the Butcher Babies, Metal Mike's Austin from the Halford Band, Sean Peck, lead singer of Death Dealer. Visionary. I'm a metal visionary. Metal visionary. Metal Mayhem ROC. It's always good to talk metal. There's not a lot of us left. You in? Thursday night, 8 p.m. East on all major podcast platforms. here with you metal mayhem roc we're turning the corner on this edition of the history of metal 1975 so ian uh there's some bands that are about to break out with their debut albums what do you got for us yeah i i think it goes without saying that probably at the top of this list that's going to be big in 1976 is boston uh, Boston will be um, popping their heads up to release their uh, their self titled uh, in '76. You've got uh, Yesterday and Today, which will eventually go on to be uh, Y&T with Dave Medichetti. They will be releasing their self titled album, The Runaways. You can't think of hard rock without thinking about Joan Jett and Lita Ford. They'll be releasing their self titled debut in '76. R A M O N E S Ramones. Ramones will be releasing their self-titled in 76. And a little Swiss band called Crocus will be releasing their self-titled album in 76. So I think we've got a lot of good stuff that's going to be leading us down the path that'll be rearing its head in 1976. Now, Crocus from Switzerland. I'm looking forward to hearing the backstory on them because, hey, man, they had their brand of uh, killer albums. They have a great career. Walt, what are you looking forward to? What do you know about some bands that are possibly honing their skills? Who's, who's around the corner in the rock world? Okay, so I think a, a couple things uh, come to mind as like what's in the in the hopper for 76 that maybe had the origins in, in 75. I think you have the Ian Gillen band. So out of uh, the demise of uh, the classic Deep Purple lineup, Ian Gillen got together and uh, started his own solo band. Then you actually have a small small little fact here about Iron Maiden actually was formed on Christmas Day in 1975, which I was not aware of until I, I did some research there, although their de- debut release wouldn't come for years later. Um, and the same thing with Triumph, Canadian band Triumph. They actually had, uh, they were a four-piece band back in 1975 under the name Abernathy Shagmaster. <laughs> what? Um and then I think, you know, uh, dear to my heart, local New York City area bands all had their origins uh, in 75. You had Zebra, Stars, uh, Richie Rano, uh, currently here in 2021. He's still a New Jersey guy. And you had Riot uh, that formed uh, with a, uh, you know, they made their four-track demo back in 75. And uh, 
man, that's just a good band that really, uh, really stayed under, under the spotlight. Who was just solid, but, uh, Mark Reale, uh, a New York city guy. Rest in peace, man. A lot of American bands are, um, you know, getting things together. Um, sticks has been uh, hard at work throughout the seventies, 75. They saw the, the release of their Equinox album, BOCs out there with on your feet or on your knees. Kansas is getting into the progressive rock scene with song for America. Uh, let's see what else is going on. Blackfoot that uh, heavier uh, Southern rock band, their debut comes around with no reservations and from the ashes of Hawkwind motorhead and Lemmy Kilmeister is getting uh, their denim and spikes together. And they're going to be coming around in 76, 77 era. So, you know, like Walt mentioned, there's a lot of bands that ended up maybe really coming into their own later in the decade. The roots were really starting in this mid seventies. As Ian has mentioned before, every year things are multiplying. So, uh, Ian, what do you got? Um, there's some other, some other bands that you like to mention that are in the hopper. Well, I think it goes without saying the band Angel, all right, coming out there, they were supposed to be touted as the, the white kiss. Okay. But they put out their own brand of killer hard rock, uh, when they hit the scene, there's a, a little-known band called Lone Star that featured the uh, Welsh guitarist Paul Tonka Chapman. And anybody like me that is a fan of UFO knows that Paul Chapman came in to be the second guitar player in UFO at the end of the Michael Schenker era and then continued on with them as their lead guitar player after Schenker left. Um, for a number of albums afterwards. And then there's a little band called Legs Diamond from California. And Legs Diamond is one of those seminal bands that was helping to cultivate that early L.A. hard rock scene that Van Halen and Quiet Riot and some of these other bands, Motley Crue eventually came from. Um, I think they need to definitely be mentioned. For some of the longer standing names, you've got you know, bands like Foghat putting out Fool for the City, Skinner putting out Nothing Fancy, ZZ Top putting out Fandango with Half Live, but then on the other side of it, you got the killer Tush. So rest in peace to Dusty Hill. We're throwing that out to you. There's just a lot of good music that I think anybody that's listening to this needs to go back and give themselves the opportunity to delve back into 1975 again. Oh, I totally agree. Here's a... Uh... Vernomatic fun fact, uh, the band The Dictators, American punk band from New York City, 73, they had Ross the Boss from Manowar. He was in that band, and Mark Mendoza, bass player of Twisted Sister. So the the ties of later metal are so obviously apparent, and you could trace it back to these bands, and it just it never stops. It's It's amazing, so... That's the kind of thing we're unraveling here and, you know, surprising me along with my uh, cohorts over here about how this hard rock and heavy metal web is um, just intertwined and honestly makes it the community that we all fell in love with. So, uh, well, I think that's about it for tonight. Uh, Any parting shots before we get out of here, guys? 
No, I think that uh, we touched on a lot of good stuff tonight. And as always, it's been informative and fun. I hope that the listeners are having as much fun and getting as much information from it as we are, because it really, uh, the more and more we talk about these things, the more it kind of opens up the little things in your brain. It's like, yeah, I got to go back and check that out. No doubt. So, all right. Well, uh, for my uh, brothers in metal, Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke, I'm the Vernomatic. You've been listening to Metal Mayhem ROC, the history of metal, the year 1975. Remember, check us out on Monday nights, thatmetalstation.com for the live radio show. And every Thursday night on podcast platforms across the board, you could hear this or just go to the MetalMayhemROC.com website. Have a great week, everyone. And as always, keep it heavy. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE-TV Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.